Alright, good morning, Summit Bible Church. Good to be with you this morning. If you would, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And before we get started here, looking at the text, I want to play a little game. Quick game. Guess who said it? Have you played this game before? Put a quote on the screen and you have to guess who said it or who wrote it. Okay? So here's the quote. You can put the quote up there. It's a great quote. I'll read it. It says this, The national government will regard as its first and foremost duty to revive in the nation the spirit of unity and cooperation. It will preserve and defend those basic principles on which our nation has been built. It regards Christianity as the foundation of our national morality and the family as the basis of national life. Okay, who said Roosevelt? Abraham Lincoln, that's what I would have guessed. Good old Abe, or George Washington. It has to be an American president, doesn't it? I mean, this is so, this is oozing with, uh, you know, our values as a nation. Now, uh, if you were to type this into Google, you might be surprised to find out that the person who wrote this was Adolf Hitler. A little far off, aren't you? Um, He wrote this in his book, My New Order. Here's a man who has Christian national unity confused with mass Semitic genocide. See, for Adolf Hitler, unity to be united equals homogeneity or uniformity. That is, his idea of unity is that in order to have true unity, we must purge the human race of all ethnic defects and we must homogenize. We must all become the same. And in his eyes, by principles of eugenics and what he calls racial hygiene, to create one new superior Aryan or Nordic human race. Now this is is prejudice to the supreme degree. And as we know, it resulted in the mass genocide of hundreds of thousands of people created in the image of God. Christian, or sorry, Christian unity does not equal homogeneity. It does not mean that we are all the same, ethnically or in a variety of different ways. In fact, God creates diversity. God creates variety. Look at this passage in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17 says this, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That is, God creates the geographical boundaries of cultures and nations. Isn't that interesting? And this is the goal, verse 27, that they should all seek God and perhaps find their way toward him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. See, God creates the diversity in, in nations, tongues, cultures. And not only does he create diversity, but what we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, God saves and unifies diversity. You remember Ephesians 2.14, he, he himself is our peace. 
He made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall. He reconciled us both to God through the cross. 19, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. These truths display the manifold, or what we call the multicolored, wisdom of God. Diversity is good in a local church. In fact, it's part of God's design. But not just ethnic diversity, not just cultural diversity, not just a a diversity of backgrounds and experiences, but look at the variety in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's more variety in the unity that we have as a local church. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 says this. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Notice how the diversity is not at odds with the unity. Diversity is not at odds with unity. What I want you to see today, Summit Bible Church, in this passage, out of the scriptures, and in our passage this morning, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, is this. We can simultaneously be corporately united, yet individually very different. Very different. If you want to put a title on this message, title it this. A healthy church has variety in unity. A healthy church has variety in unity. We are one body, united by one spirit, one Lord, one Father, with one hope, one faith, one baptism, verses 5 through 6. Yet, yet, each one of us has been gifted uniquely, differently. With variety in order to build up the church, the body of Jesus Christ. That's our text this morning. I want you to ask this question of yourself. How can I use my unique giftedness to build up the church of Christ? How can I use my unique giftedness? You all have been gifted uniquely if you are in Christ. How can you use it to build up the body of Jesus Christ, the church? Before we go any further, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer and then we'll get to our text this morning. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, God, you are filled with manifold wisdom. Your, Your wisdom is... Just incredible to think about the unity of the Trinity. And we worship one God. Yet, we know from the scriptures, there are three distinct persons. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we see this incredible display of distinctiveness even within the triune God. And Lord, as your people, we ought to reflect some of those traits reflect that character in our own lives. God, and even the body, the church reflects you, reflects your glory. So I pray that every person here would see their unique giftedness and how it contributes to the whole. 
that we would see the great diversity in our unity and that we would worship you and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Point number one, if you're taking notes, the variety in giftedness. The variety in giftedness. Look at verse 7 with me, Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now notice first the contrasting conjunction. Right at the beginning, it is but. But. And so that should give us a hint towards some sort of distinction Paul's making here from what he previously said. Now we remember in the previous section, what we looked at last week, is that Paul emphasizes unity. You see the word one mentioned multiple times. You see the word all, the father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. And he exhorted us to zealously maintain our unity. Unity is something so important that we ought to work hard to keep it, to keep it in verse uh, two, or sorry, verse three. But now with a contrasting conjunction, we see that in our text today, Paul shifts from corporate unity to individual variety. He goes from all to each one of us. There's a distinction here. And so as we noted earlier, unity does not mean sameness or homogeneity or uniformity. There's variety. Each individual is uniquely gifted and therefore different. And God-given differences are good. Now, I want to make an important note here. There are three things that we ought to not be different in. Okay, Three essentials that we should be uniformly uh, believing in and trusting ourselves in. And there are three Ds. We have first, divinity. Second, doctrine, and third, direction or mission. These are three things that we must not differ in. First of all, we must not differ in the God that we worship. We don't gather here today worshiping Allah or worshiping the Jesus of uh, Mormonism or the Jesus of Jehovah's Witness. There are different gods that people worship. We all affirm that. Amen. And so we come worshiping the one true God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And we shouldn't differ in that in our, in our gatherings. Number two is doctrine. Doctrine. Now, before you think, oh man, does all our doctrine need to be the same? I would, there is some distinctiveness in, in doctrinal nuance, but I will say that the essentials ought to be the same. That is, that we worship a triune God. We have a similar and sameness in Christology. The essentials. Uh, similar and sameness in soteriology. The doctrine of salvation. Um, we would all affirm and uh, hold to the truth that the scriptures are inerrant. That they are sufficient. You know, those essential doctrines we must be uniform on. We, we shouldn't differ on those essential issues that are critical to our orthodox faith. And the third thing that we should be united on is direction. Mission. What is our mission, Summit Bible Church? To make disciples. Right? So we have one mission, one God, and one uh, deposit of faith, the scriptures that we all hold to. Three things we should not differ in. You know, we talked about this last week. We have one coach, don't we? The same coach. We have one playbook, which is our copy of the scriptures. 
And we have one goal. That is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And we can all agree on these three essentials. We must, because it would be like then running a three-legged race with the two people going in opposite directions. It doesn't work. So we all must be going in the same direction together. But while we are united in divinity, doctrine, and direction, we can simultaneously vary or have, uh, have distinction per individual. And we're distinct in three main ways, three R's. Three things that can vary per individual is we have different resources, spiritual gifts, abilities that God has given us to contribute. We have different roles, different positions, and with those roles come different responsibilities in the church. Here's the point. This illustration might resonate with you. You don't send 11 quarterbacks onto the field to score a touchdown. That's not going to work. What, what do you need? You need a variety of players with different resources, roles, and responsibility. You need some linemen. You need some big guys in the front that can block for the quarterback. You need a halfback. Someone that has skills that are unique to his, or his position. Uh, you need receivers, right? A variety of receivers that have a different resources, different position, and a different job. And all of this variety in the offense, working together under one coach, one playbook, seeking to accomplish one goal, which is to score a touchdown. And so diversity is essential in the unity. Different parts working together to accomplish the one goal. Now, what's the uniqueness that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4? He talks about the grace that was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each of us has a, a measure of grace that is unique, that is unique from one another. Now, what is grace? Put simply, grace is undeserved favor. It's a gift that was not earned. We saw in Ephesians 2 that we were saved by grace, were we not? By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is a gift from God. So this grace that we each, we each have received is from God. It's not anything that we earned. It's not something that our own skills and talents could drum up. This is a gift from God. But this grace is unique. Grace in salvation is not unique. We've all received grace, haven't we? None of us have earned our salvation and then others received it by grace. This is a unique grace distributed in unique measures to look at the text. It says to each one of us. It varies. It's different. A helpful cross-reference for this passage is Romans chapter 12. This might help us to understand what this unique grace is. Romans 12, 3, you can turn there in your Bibles. I believe I have the text up on the screen as well. This is a good cross-reference to this passage. It says this, Paul, the author, writes this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Each is given, is given a varying measure. Do you see that in the text? 
And it's according to God's assignment. Again, it's not your doing. This is something given from God. And it is unique. Look at verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Just like the offense on a football team, they're not all quarterbacks. There's variety. Look at verse 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Diversity does not contradict unity. And here is the key, verse 6. This helps us to understand. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So what is this varying measure of grace? This varying measure of grace is spiritual giftedness that you are given, that is unique to you, unique to you as an individual, that you use to serve the body corporately. Each one of us in Christ has been spiritually gifted. We've been spiritually gifted. And it is unique. If you're looking for a spiritual gift definition, I have one right here. Spiritual gifts are unique, God-given abilities to be used in the context of service within the local church. Now, how do you know what your spiritual gift is? Where can you start? Well, you can start by looking at the various uh, lists in the Scripture. Here are some, here are, there are four significant lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. I have them here. Romans 12, verses 6 to 8, that's one list. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11 is another list. And I have an asterisk there because those are primarily the sign gifts which is a whole other sermon entirely, but we're cessationists, believing that those have ceased. But there, it's another list of spiritual gifts. You have uh, a, our passage next week, which talks about the roles of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers. We'll look at that next week. And then lastly, you have another list in 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. I encourage you to write those passages down, to look through them, read through them, and try to Understand how you as an individual are gifted. How did God wire you? What grace, measure of grace, did God give you to serve in the local church? You have to understand we're not manufactured products. We're not products that just come out of an assembly line that all do the same thing and look the same way. We're more like, you know, some of you men might not like this illustration, but we're more like the snowflake. Very diverse, unique, or a fingerprint. Fingerprint is a little bit better. Maybe men, right? We're uniquely gifted. And even within the unique giftedness, there is even a mix. See, you have some teachers and preachers that I know who are uniquely also gifted in compassion and mercy. And so it very much oozes out of their teaching and preaching. Now you have other teachers and preachers more like me, who err on the side of exhortation, you know, admonishment. They're gifted differently, and there's a mix of gifts that are different. And the same goes for those who are servants. Some servants are bent towards uh, acts of hospitality. Other servants are bent toward administrative tasks to accomplish further ministry. What is your unique giftedness, and how can you use it to contribute to the building up of the church? Again, we're all on the same team. We've been given different resources, roles, and responsibilities to accomplish the goal of making disciples. One other thing that I want to 
talk about here, in light of the reality that we're all very different. You all know that when you interact with people that are different than you, you could rub up against them sometimes. Sometimes people that are different than you are very hard to deal with because they think differently than you, right? Can I get a nod? Can you at least agree differences can sometimes cause tension? So here's a question I have for us today. How do we deal with people that are different than us? How do we deal with people that are different than us? I want to use this illustration that my pastor used to give us. How do you deal with people that are different than you? He'd ask us this question, are you a hummingbird or a vulture? Are you a hummingbird or a vulture? See, what are hummingbirds drawn towards for food? Well, beautiful flowers, right? That produce the nectar that they feed on. So hummingbirds are usually drawn towards colorful, beautiful flowers. What are vultures drawn toward for food? Dead, ugly carcasses, right? The stuff that nobody else wants to touch or even look at. That's what the vulture is drawn towards. So who are you when you deal with people that are different than you? Are you drawn towards the beauty of their differences, the beauty that God has given them, the strengths in their giftedness, or are you drawn towards just the ugly, exposing their weaknesses, the downside of their spiritual giftedness? Often in a situation, a counseling situation, when you're dealing with somebody who's struggling with something, the exhorter will come in and say, you know what, this person needs to hear the truth. They need to hear the truth. They need to look at the scriptures and they need to be taught God's word. Now you have on the other side of the spectrum, a very compassionate and merciful person that might come alongside this person and say, you know what, this person just needs to be loved. And they need to be shown the graciousness of God. They need to be shown mercy and compassion. You've seen maybe these two different approaches as you deal with people struggling in sin. How do you think these individuals are gifted? You have on one side the person who's gifted in compassion and mercy, and on the other side you have someone who's gifted in exhortation. Are both needed and necessary in the church? Yes, amen. They're very different, but they're both necessary. And sometimes they disagree with each other on how a situation should be dealt with, but it doesn't mean, in a sense, one's wrong and one's right. Different situations require different people to come alongside. Sometimes a person does need to be corrected. Sometimes a person does need to look at the truth of God's word and submit to it. They need an exhorter. They need admonishment. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 talks about it. But sometimes someone who is very weak needs encouragement, needs someone to help them come alongside. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 talks about that same individual. Different gifts, all seeking to accomplish the same purpose. But what we need to do is even though that we're gifted differently, we see the strengths in others and we don't expose or just harp on their weaknesses. You know, which are the more pleasant and attractive birds? Hummingbirds or vultures? Similarly, what kind of people are more pleasant and attractive to be around? The ones that only see the ugly and expose the weaknesses or the ones that edify and build up? And extol the strengths. So no matter what side of the spectrum you're on, whether you're the strong exhorter or the strong, merciful, and compassionate one, you need to see and extol the strengths 
in under other individuals. We have to see the incredible beauty and variety of God's grace in our unity together. Point number two. Point number two. The authority of the giver. So we looked at verse seven. There's uniqueness, a very measure of grace we're given. And then you come to verses eight through ten, and it gets a bit confusing. I have to be honest. When I first looked at verses 8 to 10, I had no clue what the Apostle Paul was talking about here. This text seems out of place. It's a bit strange based on what Paul just talked about in verse 7. And so when we come across little sections of Scripture that are like this, a little bit confusing, we have to ask and answer this question. Why is this section here? Why is this section here? We believe that the Scriptures are... All of Scripture is inspired by God. God breathed. Amen? And so when we come across sections like this, we don't just skip over them. We've got to ask and answer the question, why is this section here? So let's read it together. Maybe we'll kind of understand where I'm coming from here. It seems a bit confusing at first. It says this, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended... What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who's also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So why is this section here? Paul seemingly digresses to talk about Christ's ascension. What does that have to do with spiritual gifts? Well, first we have to note that Paul quotes another scripture here. You see at the beginning of verse 8, he says, therefore it says, and then he, there's quotes there. This is a quote, a direct quote of Psalm 68. Psalm 68, 18. So let's read that together. It's a little bit different. It varies in language. It says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Who is the you in Psalm 68? Well, we know, as Paul quotes it in Ephesians 4, that the you is the same person as the he, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ who ascended to the right hand of the Father. Paul made that very clear in Ephesians 1. Christ ascended far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named. And Paul almost quotes himself again here. You see in verse 10 that he might fill all things. Didn't Paul already say that? He said that in Ephesians 1.23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. First of all, write down this, Jesus Christ ascended. That is a truth. And that is a theology that is essential In fact, Paul clarifies that in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, the one who ascended is the same one who descended to the earth. Jesus went to the lowest of the lows. He became a man. He served men. He died as a criminal. I mean, you can't get much lower from the glory of heaven to the slavery of the earth. And when you see how far he descended, Paul makes a contrast here. Verse 9, that's the lowest he could go. Verse 10, 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. See the contrast. Jesus went so low and then as a result went so high. Far above the heavens. He is far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion. No one has traversed more ground than Jesus Christ. No one has gone lower or higher. And this is a fact. This is not a fairy tale or myth. This is true. Jesus ascended. Second of all, what this passage highlights for us is the reality that as Jesus ascended, He has all authority. He has all authority. He's high above the heavens. Another highlight in this passage that seems a bit confusing at first, you don't really know what it means, is in verse 8. It says, he led a host of captives. What does he mean by that? What does it mean that Jesus led a host of captives? That was also a, a quote out of Psalm 68. He led a host of captives in his train. What does this mean? Well, you have to do a little bit digging on this phrase. And understand that this is a declaration of triumph. In the book of Judges, the army of Israel, led by Deborah, the judge, and Barak, son of Abinoam, it was a victorious battle, or they were victorious in battle, against Jabin, the king of Canaan. And after their victory, in Judges chapter 5, Deborah and Barak sing a song of victory and praise to the Lord. And this is their song. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak. Lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. What does a victorious general do in ancient times when he conquers his enemy? while he enslaves the rest of the opposing army. He chains them. He binds them. And then, in a show of power, in a show of authority, he walks in front of his people with new captives, enslaved people that he has conquered. It's a display of dominance. Lead away your captives. Show everybody the spoils of your victory. That's what this phrase means. And Colossians 2.15 says this of Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. What does it mean that when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives? It's a declaration of triumph. It's as if the Lord Jesus Christ, like a victorious general, walked before us with His enemies bound and in chains. He's the victorious champion. He conquered everything and everyone. He rules over all. In His life, He conquered Satan and the demons. In His death, He conquered sin. In His resurrection, He conquered death. And in His ascension, He declares His dominance. He is far above all other rulers. The King of kings. The Lord of lords. Jesus indeed is King. And His ascension was just a display of His authority. And third of all, Jesus ascended, therefore has all authority, and, verse 8, 
He gave us gifts. He gave gifts to men. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, declaring his dominance and victory, and he gave gifts to men. His ascension was not just a declaration of dominance. It was an opportunity for distribution. See, our king with all the authority is also a generous giver. And didn't leave this earth without also giving his people the resources, the roles, and the responsibilities to build his church, his bride. As the king ascends to the right hand of the Father, he left, again, behold, a a variety of gifts for the building up of his church. What a good king. A king that takes care of his people. A king that takes care of his bride. Remember what he told the disciples in John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The premier gift of Christ was sending back the Holy Spirit to indwell us. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit helps us. He's the ultimate helper. And also the Spirit gives us spiritual gifts to use to build up the body of Christ. Christ in His ascension left behind His apostles who established elders and pastors who build up the church who equipped the saints for the work of ministry. We're going to see that next week, how this all plays in. But back to the original question, why is this section here? It's to remind us of this, whom our gifts come from and the stewardship that we have to our king to use them in the way that he designed us to use them. You remember in Matthew 28, Before Jesus ascended, he gave his apostles the Great Commission. What did he say before the Great Commission command? He said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I am the king. Therefore, go and make disciples. Similarly, we see Christ has all authority. Then he turns around. He gives us individual gifts. The expectation, Christian, is that you would use them. You would use them in the way that the king designed for you to use them because they come from him my pastor chris Mueller, is a generous man uh he's taken care of me in so many ways i I remember one time specifically um, we used to have pastoral beach days so in the summer the pastoral staff would get together and we'd go to the beach together and we would talk ministry and talk about the church but also just have a ton of fun okay let's not get around that uh, it was a great time, but on one of these beach days, I lost my wedding ring in the, in the waves. And, I mean, it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. All the pastoral staff scoured the beach, and it was just, you know, it was a futile endeavor to try to look for a wedding ring in the ocean, right? And Chris felt so bad that I had lost my wedding ring, and he wrote me a check, and he gave it to me, and he said, Morgan, go out and buy a wedding ring. It was an incredible act of generosity. He just gave me the check and said, go and buy a wedding ring. Well, at the time, I was a youth pastor. And, uh, you know, needless to say, didn't have a lot of money. And we had some utility bills due. And so I decided 
I took that money from Chris and I deposited it in my account and paid the utility bill. And decided to spend the money on that. Sure enough, two weeks later, a couple weeks later, Chris noticed I didn't have a wedding ring on my finger and he said, hey, where's your wedding ring? So I told him the truth. I said, Chris, I, you know, money's tight right now and so I used the money to pay a utility bill instead. And he looks at me and he goes, I didn't give you the money to pay for a utility bill. I gave you this money to buy a wedding ring. He, he said, what, what's more important, Morgan, the symbol of your covenant that you made with your wife or a monthly utility bill? He said, trust the Lord. The Lord will take care of your bills. Go out and buy a wedding ring. That's why I gave you the money. And so I did. I went out and bought a wedding ring. You know, I tell that story just to illustrate what so many Christians do with their spiritual gifts. The Lord Jesus Christ has given them a spiritual gift for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. And so many Christians take the gift that Christ has given them and they use it for everything else in life that they deem is important or valuable. And they never or neglect to use the gift for what Christ deems as most precious, most valuable. And you know what that is? The church. His bride. Christian, you have a stewardship to your victorious king. A responsibility to use the gift that he has given you. You've been given a measure of Christ's gift. It comes to you from your king for a purpose. And it's not to grow your business. It's not to increase your followers on social media. It's not to take care of your extended family. It's not to start a parachurch organization. But your spiritual gift has been given to you to employ in the church for the building up of the body of Christ. Say, prove it, Morgan. Prove it that that is why God has given me spiritual gifts. To build up the church. To serve in the church. Glad you asked me to prove it. Look at 1 Peter 4.10. Here's a great sum cap on the text that we've learned from today. As each has received a gift. Have each of you received a gift? Have you, have you been uniquely gifted? Yes. Where do you use it? Use it to serve one another. Who are the one another's? It's the church. It's the church. As what? Good stewards. We have a stewardship of God's varied grace. The variety in our unity was given to us to build up one another. Like the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle to fit in where the holes of another individual are. Strengths that meet the weaknesses. As we all, like different members of a body, function together for the overall health and unity of the body. That's how we are to function in the local church. And so again, I ask you this question. How can you use your unique giftedness to build up Christ's church? To build up the church. Where do you start? Where do you start in this 
great endeavor. How do you figure out how you're spiritually gifted? How do you figure out how to use it to build up one another in the church, to serve in the church? A couple things. I just write these down. Three simple steps. Number one, know what the spiritual gifts are. I hope you wrote down those passages and you look through them to see what the spiritual gifts are and see maybe how you're how you, what your mix is, what you're bent towards, what you're interested in, what you like, and then what others affirm in the body. Number two, start serving. There are a variety of ways to serve at Summit Bible Church. We talk about it all the time. You can easily sign up to serve by going to summitbiblechurch.org slash signups and sign up to serve on Sunday morning. There are a variety of opportunities. And so try something that maybe is outside of your comfort zone to see if maybe God has gifted you in that way to serve the church. Or just start by serving somewhere. You know, I can come and set up chairs early in the morning, so I'll do that. Or I can watch kids when the children's ministry comes back. Lord, please help the children's ministry to come back. And so start, jump in and serve in that way. And then, so you find out what the spiritual gifts are, you sign up to serve, and then third... Talk to people around you. How am I doing? Give me some feedback. Is this helpful? Am I good at this? Does it look like I'm enjoying it? Get the affirmation from the church body, the church that will encourage you or discourage you and say, hey, you know what, brother, sister? I think maybe this is where you should be serving. Let me help you. You know, or hey, brother, sister, I'm really encouraged. I just want you to know and be a hummingbird, right? I just want to let you know that, man, you really shine the love of Christ. You really shine for the gospel when you do this. Even when you set up chairs. Even when you're back there clicking on the PowerPoint presentation to go forward. Man, it's such a, such a help to this church. Be the hummingbirds in the church that extol and lift up the beauty of the various gifts of Christ in our church. Christian, how can you use your giftedness unique giftedness to build up the church. Figure that out and apply it this week. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together in the text. Thank you for the each, uh, just the varied grace that each of us has to serve one another for the building up of your church. God, I pray that all of us, God, would seek to use our giftedness to build up the church. God, that you would rid us of distractions that prevent us from doing that. Whether it's uh, compassion, mercy, service, teaching, exhortation, hospitality, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would help us to find out what our gifts are and to use them. Help this church to grow in our unity as we use the variety. And that you would get all the glory, God, because again, it's your manifold, it's your multicolored wisdom that brings people together of different ethnicity, different cultural backgrounds, different experiences, and different gifts and different acts of service all together as one to just be an incredible display of the glory of God. And that we would give you glory in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.